didn't do anything. I'm a nice man. I mind my own business. So you tell me that's that before I beat the hell from you. I have so much strength in me, you have no idea. I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. I would say that's that, Mattress Man. Hi everybody, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics, the podcast where Mike and I watch movies separately and talk about them on the show for the first time. One of us texted the other one, I forget who, maybe I think I texted you, Mike, and said, let's do an episode on what movie? Punch Drunk Love. Punch Drunk Love, the 2002 romantic comedy, the rom-com, you might call it, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, big friend of the pod. So in part one, we always talk about our overall take on the film. So Mike, we watched it again to get ready for today. What's your overall take on Punch Drunk Love? Samuel Beckett's brother once accosted him and said, why can't you write like other people want? And I feel like that's what the studio said to Paul Thomas Anderson before he wrote Punch Drunk Love. He'd done Heart Eight and Magnolia and had a bunch of other um, boogie nights, boogie nights. Right. I feel like what the studio was asking him for is why can't you make a 90 minute exactly uh, romantic comedy where two people fall in love that has a happy ending? Like, what's the matter with you? We've been backing you. Just make what people want. And I feel like he did. And for whatever reason, they don't want it. They don't like it. It was a commercial flop, but it was a critical darling because it's a fantastic movie. I think that this movie works on every level. I see and I'm kind of jealous for the movie in a weird way because other movies that are not as good, but try to do the same thing, but just worse, are much more famous. Do you know what movie I'm thinking of? No. I'm thinking of Up in the Air. This is... Uh, with George Clooney? Is, with George Clooney, if if a real, real good director, like a real auteur had written up in the air, you would get something a lot like Punch Drunk Love. Um, besides the scheme about airline miles, um, this this is about the possibility of something happening to you, but you need to take some kind of risk. The whole movie is about risk reward. This is about Adam Sandler peeking around the the doorway of his garage right? Because he's like a turtle. Like he wants to be inside, but he wants to see what's going on outside. And sometimes, right, when you go outside, you get a weird piano. And sometimes when you go outside, you fall in love. One time he goes to the end of his drive and there's a huge crash, just some car dramatically flips over, which may be the only time that that happens in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And I, I just think that the, that the theme of the theme of vulnerability in a way that something can happen to you, whether that thing is good or bad, is explored maybe better in this movie than it is in any other romantic comedy I can think about, but it flopped and it's unfair. A couple follow-up points on that. And I do believe that if you and I were the umpires of the universe, we would go back and re-release this movie and demand Absolutely. people watch it. I love it as much as you do. I mean, if there will be blood is a is hundred on the Paul Thomas Anderson report card, and that's a hundred A plus, this movie is like a, a 95 or a 96. It's funny what you said about the car wreck in the beginning, because I just saw it, and we'll have to do this in the future. I just saw Licorice Pizza, finally. And that movie, the very first scene of the movie, these kids are combing their hair in the school bathroom, and someone goes, cherry bomb! And a toilet explodes, and that's it. 
And it's just like how the car wreck in the very beginning of this, that's how Lena comes into his life. Like you're, you're standing one day in your, in your suit, ready for work, holding your coffee cup and out of the blue, this thing happens and someone drops off the harmonium. And then your sister's friend shows up, you know, to, to ask if she can get the, leave her car there. So everything comes out of the blue. And that's what I love about this movie. You also mentioned about like what people wanted and why it flopped. Everybody I know that I've asked about this movie has no one seen it. First of all, no one, no, no one's seen it. And then, but they've seen Billy Madison and they've seen Happy Gilmore and they've seen Anger Management and all the quote unquote regular Adam Sandler movies, but they haven't seen this one. And I think what happened was people went into the movie wanting to see a quote unquote Adam Sandler movie and then they get this. And I think that the fun of the movie is he's still playing Adam Sandler to some degree. He's like a more, you know, neuroticized version of that character, but he's he's in California and he's he's trying to do his best of being this turtle. I also love what you said about how it, it like it, it's 90 minutes in and out, but you learn so much about these people because you compared it to a turtle. And just like a turtle, like he's got his shell. That's his, that's his running away. And when he goes behind the thing in the beginning. And the movie's a perfect combo of like, like awkwardness. And, and vulnerability, like you said, and real emotion. Like, we'll talk about this at the ending. I think the ending of this is so, it, it makes your heart expand. It almost like redeems the human race. You're so happy that those two were together at the end. It's also, though, like really funny, right? Like, aren't they like, re- weren't you like laughing out loud? You're, you're not supposed to know exactly what's wrong with Adam Sandler's character. Right. It's not like when the psychiatrist from Psycho comes in at the end and right. explains some diagnosis. There are many things funny about his character. The funniest thing, though, is when everybody says pudding, but especially when Adam Sandler says pudding. But the gags are much simpler. Either, you know, you, you don't need the same kind of gags as they use in other Adam Sandler movies. And I like many of those movies and there's nothing wrong with them. Right. But this is a real like th- this is Adam Sandler really turning it on. Yeah. And and I feel like the saddest any other Adam Sandler movie gets is like a three and the happiest it gets is like a seven. And what happens in this movie is that you, that you crank the bottom down to a negative seven and the top to a 17 out of 10. The movie gives you little glimpses as to why he's like a turtle, right? Or why you once said you're going to title your memoirs Indoorsy. You get the sense of why he's so indoorsy, right? Like his sisters, like constantly hectoring him, right? Constantly bringing up the story about when he smashed the, the, the thing with the door with the hammer. So much that that uh, when she brings it up on their first date, he has to go and destroy the bathroom. Right? He's full of anger. He and he and it, and it only comes out through rage. Right? How funny that he sells he sells plungers. Right? It only comes out through rage. And he doesn't want it. It's about a guy making that leap between being indoorsy and seeing the whole world. Hence that great dance when he goes to his sister's party and he goes in the door and he goes out the door and goes in the front door and comes out the front door. Remember, he's like, am I going to come in? And he can't get a clear signal from his sisters. They all call and yell at him for about coming to the party. But then when he shows up, the first thing they say is, remember, we used to call you gay boy. And he's like, no, nah, I don't remember that. They go, no, no. Remember, we used to call you Barry the gay boy. Remember? Until the point where he smashes out the doors there. So at the same time they call him out of concern, they're also giving him a hard time. When they call him at work, remember he says, I can't chat right now. And he says, like, chat? You can't chat? Like, who are you, chat? So it's like constant. So I think, like, you, you don't get the diagnosis from the guy in Psycho, but you get a sense of, like, what it's like to have these seven sisters to be alone, to try to start your own business and try to do the right thing. And the movie's about this guy, you know, who, who gets a link to the outside world but it's not done in a sentimental way. It's not done in a cringeworthy way. Like he's a real person. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson 
knew that. And he was like, I bet you Adam Sandler can do this. Yeah, I think the thing that best sums him up is he's trying to buy the puddings to exploit a loophole in Healthy Choices promotion to get unlimited airline miles. But he doesn't want to go anywhere. Exactly. And that's and that. So it's a 90 minute exploration of what would make a man who doesn't want to go anywhere go somewhere. And I think it's done beautifully. Yeah, but part of him does want to go somewhere, right? Because he keeps wanting to connect with people. Half the movie, he's on the phone. First scene in the movie, do you remember what he's doing in the very first scene? He's talking to the guy from Healthy Choice saying there must be an over, right? There must be an over, you know, over. Then he calls Georgia on the phone sex line. Then, you know, he calls Philip Seymour Hoffman later. His sisters keep calling him up. He, when he's in Hawaii at the phone booth, like he's constantly, he's trying to connect with people. When he calls Georgia that first night, it's not because he's like, you know, you know, all uh, excited. It's because he's he, he's so pathetically lonely. Remember, he only sees her phone number, that ad, because he's cutting out the coupons for the healthy choice. And he gets this idea, well, I'll talk to somebody. And she asks him all those questions. Like, are you this? Are you that? He's like, oh, I don't really know what I am. Well, the, the best for me is when he asks his brother-in-law, uh, Barry for an, for the number for a psychiatrist, right? Because he needs someone to talk to. Yeah, he says I'm a dentist, right? He says like I can't, I don't know how other people feel, and when you see that, like it's so painful, right? And he says I'm a dentist, and then he says sometimes I can't stop crying, and he cries, and the scene changes, and you're like, what was that? Because you almost don't know what to feel about it. It's because it's so it, it it's the classic Adam Sandler zero to sixty, but not in a haha way. Not in a well-lit way, actually. Like when I picture Adam Sandler movies in my mind, I'm seeing the like the lighting scheme from Happy Gilmore. But then I'm now now I'm seeing the closet where he's laying down crying, uh, talking to his brother-in-law. Right. And it's and again, it it is like you turned down the light and turned up the consequence meter and actually just let him cry. And he's, he's such a good actor. He really can go yeah. zero to sixty. And all the violence in the movie is unlike the violence in a regular Adam Sandler movie. Like when he's fighting like um, Bob Barker on, on the golf course, right? That That's all done for laughs. You know, that's just a, But here, like when, when he smashes out those glass doors, you put your hand over your mouth, but you also understand why he did it. You, you, you totally understand why he did it at that moment. You understand why he rips apart the bathroom. And so and that's like a different kind of Adam Sandler violence, so to speak. Well, so much so much of it is done through the music. And yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't really return to that. Um, but he gives us that that first scene where he's running around and it says, Barry, your sister's online yeah. too. And he's got to run back. The music gives you anxiety yeah. yes. because it doesn't allow you to think. And so many things are going on. And I think that the audience would be sitting there doing calculations because they're not in the moment. And Paul Thomas Anderson takes that away from you by having the harmonium music. So you can't even hear yeah. your own thoughts and you're getting more anxious. And all you're waiting for is the release. And again, it is funny that he sells plungers because emotionally he's backed up. Yeah. And I think that they do a really good job uh, helping the audience feel that sympathy through the through the non-diegetic music. Those long takes, like that's a that's a big thing in all his movies, right? The long sequences with with the music playing in the background, and you get nervous there. The great thing about the movie is that you kind of like you're totally on his side because first of all, Adam Sandler's so likable, but you're also on his side because you feel for Barry, like you want this ugly duckling to meet the swan, which he does. And and for me, the moment where I realized how involved or how invested I was in Barry's story 
is when he's on the phone in Hawaii at the payphone. And of course, it's during a parade and there's like a million cops going by and he has one finger in his ear. And he says, this is after, by the way, he tells the taxi driver to take him where all the beaches and hotels are. So he's on the phone and he calls his sister because he wants a surprise lead. He's where she's staying. She's like, why, Barry? Why? Why do you want a number for it? And he starts going, give me your phone number. Give me your, I'll kill you. I'll kill you. And he just starts, he's so full of anger. And so was I. I'm just like, give him the phone number. Give him the phone number. You you become Barry. Yeah. And it's and the artistry is so beautiful, but you it's hard to imagine another romantic comedy with that level of identification where you're not watching two people fall in love. You are one of the people falling in love. Okay, welcome back. So in part two, of course, we talk about our favorite moments or key scenes. Dan, why don't you kick it off? So my moment is building upon what you said before about how we are, we become Barry, we become invested in his story, want to be like him. We said we don't know technically what's quote unquote wrong with Barry. There's a lot right with Barry. I think he's a good guy. But one of the things about Barry is the reason we we get so invested in him is because we recognize our own insecurities in him. And, we, and the way he gets nervous on a date, we get nervous on a date. The way he wants to talk to other people, we want to talk to other people. So my moment is when he calls Georgia the night in his apartment. And he's very nervous about giving his credit card. And, and you know he's getting scammed. When they ask for his social, you're like, don't do it. But he's he's so desperately lonely. You're like, it's like a horror movie, right? Like, don't open the closet door. And he tells him all that stuff. And he says, when you call me back, call me Jack. And she's like, okay, okay, Barry. No, he's call me Jack, okay. So he picks up the phone. Now, in the whole movie, every time he picks up the phone, he says, this is Barry. This is Barry. And when he picks up the phone, when she calls him back, he says, this is back. Because he want, he says Barry and Jack at the same time, right? It's like earlier in the movie when he says, oh, business is food instead of business is good. Now, those things never, ever happen in movies. They happen all day long, right? They happen in our podcast all the time, right? All the time. But in movies, they never happen. So first of all, kudos to Paul Thomas Anderson for letting people flub their lines, so to speak. But I think that when he says this is back is interesting because in that scene, he's trying to be somebody else. He thinks, well, I can't be cool if my name's Barry Egan, right? What was, what's a cool name? Jack. That's why movie stars change your name all the time, right? So he tries to be somebody else. And that, that idea of this guy, Barry, trying to be Jack, trying to be a different guy, it runs throughout the whole movie. And I think that's really recognizable, right? Do you remember why, um, why he's wearing that blue suit to work? Do you remember his explanation for why? Lance says, why are you wearing a suit today? And he says, I, I just thought I should wear a suit to work. And all of a sudden, like, what's with the blue suit, Barry? And he's like, oh, I don't know. Like, he just thought he should look nice. Like, he should get dressed up to go to work. When he gets beat up by the four brothers the first time, he's he's like a big whip. He's running. He's sobbing. Like, that's very, quote, unquote, real. He doesn't know where to go. He's going, help me, help me. He wishes he were tougher. But then what happens later in the movie? He loses it because he loses it Lena. and he is tougher. And he, with absolute Kurosawa like precision, hits them with a tire iron. And that is so cool that he gives it back to the last guy. I just love how he gives it back to him, right? So, the beginning, you know, he wants to be this other guy and then he becomes that guy. He wants to be um, Casanova on a date. Like, how do you talk to a woman? He's so nervous. It takes Lena coming in and saying, I'm going to dinner tomorrow night and you're going to come with me. And here's my, and he's like, oh, okay, right? So, he wants to be Casanova. But then later in the movie, he goes to Hawaii and you see that shot of him in the bathrobe on the bed, like waving when she's on the phone, like all of a sudden, like, oh yeah, he kind of is Casanova now. So I think it's kind of cool because ultimately, what does he want? Like he wants somebody to talk to. He wants somebody to not, to stop giving him a hard time. And he gets that. Like he, be, he gets to become the kind of guy he wanted to be. He's still Barry, thank God. 
But I think that that moment where he says, this is back, it's such a great like uh, point of inter- inflection between who he is and who he wants to be. So my moment is kind of, what does it take to get there? Okay. Because when he goes out to dinner with Lena, they finally get around to his big secret, which is the coupons. And it's something, it's very much like the, the garage of his soul, because it's something that's inside and she asked for it to come outside and what what you find out in the movie is that physically in your body you can leave the garage but you can't get what you want unless the inside leaves the garage too because she says no 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 tell me and he says i I would prefer not to talk about my personal business and she goes no 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 like what's with all the pudding you have to explain the pudding and the punchline you know he explains the whole the whole thing but he whispers it yeah. Because he, he doesn't want anybody from the other booth to over here. And the punchline of it is that they, they for some reason, and he can't believe that they could make a mistake like this, they put the barcodes on the individual cups. The individual and that's, the, that's when his soul leaves the garage because anything that he has, like all of his secrets are cleared now, minus Georgia, who he'll clear up, but then he, you know, he confesses that later. And so I think this movie is very much about people who trick themselves that they've actually come outside, that they've actually made themselves vulnerable in some way. And I don't just mean in a, in a touchy feely way, you, in order for somebody to see you, you have to show them. Right. And so there's so many like Barry at the beginning of the movie is a person I think who doesn't feel seen, but he doesn't want anybody to see him. He'll go out of his way to make sure that he's not seen. And so of course it's, it's no mystery why this is and so i feel like despite the goofiness we've we haven't even talked about philip seymour hoffman (laughs) and the ending there's there's a lot of gags in this movie but there's a really deep psychological reality about this movie and about barry where you you can't necessarily just feel sorry for barry because you understand what it is he's doing but when he stops doing it he does get what he wants there's something deeply therapeutic and real about this movie that's so beautiful and it just makes me frustrated when other people haven't seen it or didn't like it to extend your metaphor about the garage i mean you can't if you leave that car running in the garage too long what's going to happen yeah you die you die right you'll get you'll get you'll be poisoned and that's you know and that is kind of like what happens to him you know his 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 again it's much safer to stay in your garage it's much safer to be the turtle and stay in your shell. And that's what he's trying to do. And that's why his sisters at the beginning are trying to get him to come out of the shell. That's why his sister says, I have someone I want you to meet. Why do people want to fix up other people? Because they understand and feel feel their misery. Yes, right. Exactly. Right. And so and so they want to be do-gooders and they think they know what's best. And that's exactly where his sister's coming from. And eventually he get you know, like you said, he gets what he wants. And there's something so deeply psychologically satisfying about that. Let me say this. I have a natural clock. I don't know if you feel this for how long I'll give a, a bad movie. Uh, any movie with Luis Guzman in it, I will automatically give it another 20 minutes to see if he's coming back. Like, I, I, I don't know if other people feel this way about Luis Guzman. Every time he turns up in a movie, I go, huh, there he is. Roger Ebert had a rule. It was called the Stanton Walsh rule. And it was any movie with Harry Dean Stanton or M. Emmett Walsh can't be totally bad. That's I feel that way about Luis Guzman. And how great is it when he comes back to work the next day with his suit on? Because it's so had his own. it's so good, and I I love that um he'll bring it up, but he knows he knows Barry well enough that when Barry says I don't want to talk about something, he just leaves it with yeah. right right. And again, like 
a true friend isn't going to force you, but understands, right? A, like a bad friend would stop bringing it up, bring it up. So he says like, are you learning to play the piano? And he goes, that's not a piano. And that's the end of the conversation, right? And it's like, hey, what's with the pudding? And he's like, let's put the pudding over there. You go, okay, right? It's a, it's a continuous invitation to like open your soul to me as your friend. I'm not going to hurt you, but I'm also not going to force you. Hi, welcome back. So in part three, of course, we talk about the title or the ending or the key takeaways. Let's start with the ending first. This movie is, it's truly romantic in the sense that you actually get to see the romance step by step by step. But it's much more romantic, I think, than than many other movies that are that claim to be that. But I want to go back to what you said before about when he brings up the pudding scheme in the restaurant. He tells her at the end when he's out of breath, he's like, and then they call the phone sex line and they came and they tried to get all my money. And he confesses that to her, right? That's kind of like what a relationship is as it's built. It's a series of confessions. It's a series of moments where you either tell somebody something about yourself or it comes up, right? So on the first date, when she asks about the pudding, Barry's thinking, this is going too quickly. This is going too fast. He knows you're supposed to get those things out in the open. He doesn't really know how. Hence, the moment when he calls from the payphone and asks her if she ever had a boyfriend or was married. Remember that? She's like, we ever married? She says, can we talk about this some other time? So that's what building a relationship is. It's a series of confessions. So to Barry and to the audience, I think at the end, he tells her about Georgia. He brings the harmonium. We're clean. We're good. There's nothing else in the Barry Egan dark past. Now we can move ahead. And when the coupons come in, it'll be great. And that's why I think the last scene of the movie is him playing the harmonium. And she says, so here we go. I, I think the moving thing for me is we see him take a series of steps outside of the garage. But the beautiful thing is that um, is after he drives to Provo for the stare down with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I think it's so beautiful because he leaves his garage he goes to another state and he goes into somebody else's yeah. garage, right? He goes into like the center of their power. And you know, it's the same thing in there because Philip Seymour Hoffman's getting a haircut while he's <laughs> sitting there, which is, uh, it's just so absolutely pitch perfect. I have nothing else to say about that, but that is like, if you, if you tried to whiteboard 200 ideas and you came up with getting a haircut, that's the chef's kiss of in anything the mattress that could have possibly been on the board. And he tells her to shut up yeah. and he comes out in the, in the apron and they have their stare down. But the, the beautiful thing is I think that in a worse movie, like if we imagine how the movie could have been, he goes and has the stare down or something and then gets enough power to beat the guys up. Right. I think what's actually romantic about this movie or what's psychologically healthy about this movie in a, in a certain way is that he can beat the guys up in a fit of rage. He can go have the, have the stare down in somebody else's center of power, like hundreds or thousands of miles away from where he feels safe as the little like turtleberry that he is. But what he gets the power to do when he comes home is do what you just said, yeah. is, is confess and open his soul and so it's 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 outside of all the other things that he's trying to transform, but he becomes somebody who can be seen because he's willing to let somebody look at him. And that's, I think, what's so beautiful about this movie. And that's what a relationship is, because it's scary to let somebody look at you. Terrifying. Terrifying. 
So thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about Punch Drunk Love. If you haven't seen it, well, if you haven't seen it, we've spoiled a lot of it. But if you have seen it a while ago when you're kind of like, oh, I remember that was pretty good. How fast should they watch it again, Mike? Just turn it on right now because if it's uh, it's currently 1030 in the morning. You'll be done by noon. We hope you'll follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm. You can also follow us on Letterboxd. Letterboxd. Let us know what we should watch next. Thank you so much. And please subscribe to the show. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're really happy to take requests as well. See you next time.